Um, good afternoon. I am Shane Duran. I am a committee member with the SIPS uh, Queensland Branch Committee. Um, and with me today I have Peter Lacey and Alicia Larkin. Um, but before we get into our podcast on modern slavery, I just want to um, acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of the land on which we meet, namely the Yuggera and Turrbal people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Um, Alicia, can I just get you to introduce yourself? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Shane. Uh, as Shane mentioned, my name's Alicia Larkin. I'm the Director of Procurement at the Queensland Building and Construction Commission, which is a statutory body here in uh, Queensland Government. And Peter? Yes, uh, I'm, my name's Peter Lacey. I lead the Procurement Branch for Queensland Government Procurement, uh, but I'm also uh, appointed as the lead for collaboration on the elimination of modern slavery for the Queensland Government. Excellent, thanks. So um, the Modern Slavery Act and the reporting requirements have been in place for around four years now. Uh, It's currently being reviewed and there'll no doubt be um, some changes to it. Uh, I won't speculate on what those are at the moment. Um, However, I do want us to discuss the practical implications of addressing modern slavery. Um, So if buyers or suppliers see it as just one more legislative requirement, it could then just uh, degenerate into a box ticking exercise Um, But it should be kept in mind that we are dealing with real people um, who are victims of um, horrendous crimes of modern slavery, trafficking and forced labour. The International Labour Organisation recently updated their estimates of um, the numbers of victims of slavery worldwide and there's a 25% increase on the 2016 estimate, taking it from 40 million people to 50 million globally. Um, So keeping this in mind, uh, as a procurement practitioner, what can we uh, practically do to address modern slavery or are we really just going through a box ticking exercise? Um, uh, Shane, Shane, I think we can do things practically to, um, uh, to eliminate modern slavery and, and I do hope that people don't see it just as a box ticking exercise. Um, although I think procurement practitioners understand the importance in a probity sense of ticking boxes and a governance sense. So, so so there is some value to ticking boxes, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but um, um, certainly we'd love to, to affect some real change to those horrendous numbers that we see uh, across the world. I think, um, I think uh, at, a, at a high level, we can ensure that, that, that our policies, our plans, um, uh, whether they're whole of government ones or just organisational or even work unit pieces, um, give some consideration to the issue. I think there's a question of ensuring that um, um, of working with our suppliers because quite often there's a tremendous amount of goodwill from our suppliers uh, and um, in some ways they're often as capable as we are of contributing to that elimination so yeah. having that conversation with them I think can be very powerful just to begin with. Alicia, do you have any thoughts around that? Yes, uh, I think what we see now is, um, and we forget sometimes, that it is a significant behaviour change piece. So whilst it has been around for four years, what we're starting to see now is some of the more deeper thinking around how do we address modern slavery, where we've what I'm observing is um, significant effort and quite rightly put into 
raising somebody's awareness and understanding about modern slavery first so that they know what they're meant to be looking for or asking about. Um, but then also putting in place some of those assess risk assessment tools um, and refining those so that they can seek some information from suppliers. And now I think we've reached the point of, okay, well, we've got this information. We've got information from a couple of years. So how do we use that and analyze it to put forward some, you know, tactical ways to address um, the, the risks that we're seeing with certain suppliers or within certain industries in our organizational business um, and taking that more risk-based approach in um, compartmentalizing some of the way you can make the change um, to make it easy, a little bit easier to digest and do. Um, we are at the procurement stream and the procurement function, so I think we should also acknowledge that our ability to address the more broader aspects of the modern slavery definition around um, you know, forced marriage and human trafficking and maybe some aspects of child labor, um, um, sex crimes and things like that. Um, we may not have any exposure to as a business nor would necessarily a corporation. So what realistically, I think it's about realistically looking about what business can do and what procurement can do, but knowing that there is still a significant social component that isn't being addressed through the act as it is laid out at the minute. Mm. Yeah, th this is true. I mean, it, it does seem to address or be targeted more at supply chains um, per se and operations within businesses rather than some of those other social aspects. Um, but at least I guess it's still making a difference in, in that area and, and uh, hopefully others will be able to uh, identify and address issues such as, like I say, with forced marriage and, and uh, sex crimes. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the... Um, the elements that you identified then, you're putting toolkits and so on in place to assist uh, both buyers as well as suppliers. How can we verify though that what we're being told by our suppliers is true, particularly if we're dealing with internationally based um, suppliers who may have very opaque supply chains? I think it's difficult, <laughs> I'll be honest. Um, we don't there would be a lot of research having to go in desktop research having to go into looking at particular um, regions um, deep diving into that organization or, or the, the areas where you are sourcing from at that primary level um, and seeing what the legislation and rules are like and what the political environment's like in that country and there's a lot of different factors that go into whether that's a higher risk area or not. Um, and putting the time and ability to be able to do that, I think is quite difficult, really. And in the absence of having something that is more automated, that draws in from different sources across the web and builds a profile of a region for you, this is just off the top of my head, there probably is yeah. such a software out there that does this. Um, but then does financial checks or looks at artic news articles and checks media and does all those things and, and comes up with a, a, a view of that supplier based on those other external resources, then we could, I suppose, better understand the responses that we're getting. I think for government, we're still very much looking at that 
the, the supplier we're dealing with and then and how they operate and then asking them to look at their supply chain and again maybe putting that um, assessment hat on for them that they might not be prepared to do either or, or yeah. able to do. Yeah. I, I think we've been looking at a range of of options in terms of there, there are some products out there they're quite diverse so, so different different um, providers offer very different ways of approaching the question um, uh, and so some some will um, trawl, will trawl the web and uh, other publicly available information to piece together a profile of a, of a company uh, some will um, for an appropriate price, you know, do an investigation on a particular supplier to, to see what's to be found. Um, uh, others will look more sort of positively at what, what the governance arrangements are for a particular supplier. And and so, so we're having a look at those options. I think it, some of them would suit other, uh, suit different procurements differently. Yeah. Uh, I, it's true, though, that they all tend to be costly, and so, um, so the real question is, uh, the, the challenging question is, how do you address it for um, routine procurement for for low value, um, uh, low value, low risk, <laughs> in, in low procurement commas, risk, low procurement Not risk, necessarily low modern slavery risk, right. <laughs> indeed, cheap. Um, be, Cheap could be, mean more modern slavery. Because it's yeah. often true that that's yeah. the territory where the mm. modern slavery risk can be highest. Yeah. So, so, so what do you do about that uh, space? And that's that's an, an interesting question. Um, um, uh, I have to say, as the owner of the Bike Queensland approach, that, that obviously we're going to say it's best to look locally. But again... Um, there are a number of supply chains where that's challenging, yeah. uh, and and they do ultimately lead overseas. And so, yeah, uh, I, I think that it probably underlines the point though too, that um, it's not just an international issue, mm. and and um, um, there are a number of cases uh, historically that have been in the in the published in the public media um, about. Uh, what amounts to modern slavery in Australia? Yeah. So, so, um, and that's easier to do the due diligence on, and um, uh, some of it probably boils down to: um, Are we, as procurement practitioners, doing the appropriate um, ESG-related due diligence on our suppliers? Because yeah. uh, a lot of ESG risks are interrelated. So, so if you're um, uh, if you're the sort of entity that's likely to uh, engage in modern slavery, you're probably um, uh, not a very ethical operator across a range of measures, yeah. and so um, some of which are easier to identify than the modern slavery piece. So, so, so that that that's another option too for for identifying where that risk might be. And that's one of the things I personally have found as well in speaking with suppliers is that many of them don't necessarily understand what a supply chain actually is. Mm. They will be locally based mm. and say that their suppliers are also Australian, therefore there is no risk. 
but without understanding what a supply chain looks like and understanding that their suppliers' suppliers may actually be based uh, overseas in mm. high-risk countries, mm. or uh, they just don't seem to understand that the risk actually exists here in Australia as well. Mm. Um, and mm. you know, there were numbers of fifteen thousand being bandied around of people in Australia who were caught up in modern slavery as well. Mm. Uh, and certainly, mm. there's been other cases, not necessarily prosecuted under um, uh, modern slavery or slavery type legislation, but have gone through um, fair work for instance mm -hmm. and when you look at those cases there is a potential that they may well have uh, drifted over into that slavery space yeah. highly exploitative mm -hmm. not just wage theft but mm -hmm. you know horrid conditions of people here in Australia so mm -hmm. um, I think that awareness piece that you talked about Alicia as well is, is extremely important uh, for buyers and suppliers to understand it's not mm -hmm. just an international problem but, mm -hmm. but a local mm -hmm. one as well. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we're in a really good position now, I mean, good because of all the change and because of COVID, that business owners and, and corporations actually do understand a bit more about supply chain because mm -hmm. they haven't been able to get as easy access as they had before on some of the goods and products that they thought that they could get quite easily, but oh. without realising that actually ultimately it, didn't come from your supplier in Sydney, it came yeah. from somebody overseas who's um, in lockdown. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. So with this, the cost of compliance obviously is raised, whether it's that we're paying for products where people are being paid a living wage, uh, whether it's here in Australia or, or uh, countries of origin overseas, or as you say, those subscription services and investigative services um, to uh, look into those supply chains. So it does come at a higher cost, but what would be the benefit of that do you see in uh, expense? Like if we're trying to convince suppliers as well as our own um, people who control the purse strings that it is worth us spending that additional money? Um, I, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is obviously uh, it relates to reputational risk. So, so, so um, um, very few businesses, public or private, um, want to see themselves connected to modern slavery. Uh, that the damage to a business from that is significant, uh, and um, uh, uh, I think it's a relatively easy sell if the if the compliance cost is not extreme to, 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 to say that that's a small piece of insurance to, to pay. But um, that, that I think is being very, uh, um, I'm speaking there to the hard-minded uh, people who count pennies, and, and um, um, uh, really at the heart of it, uh, who wants to do business with an unethical supplier anyway? Yeah. Um, uh, and so, so it, it becomes an ethical question mm. um, uh, and, and I think I suspect for, for a lot of procurement practitioners that's what comes first uh, but, but uh, if they are confronted by uh, the argument that this is not a justifiable cost uh, then, I, then I think um, uh, certainly reputational risk springs to mind um, can I say again in terms of that we talked before about that um, 
low value procurement. Um, uh, the other reality is that um, 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 product produced as a result of modern slavery is probably unlikely to be high quality product. Mm. And that's, that's just a rude reality too. Yeah. So if you're saving money um, by the use of unethical labour inputs to a product, you're, you're probably buying a poor product as well. Right. So, so they're just a couple of things off the top of my head. Do you have thoughts, Alicia? Um, yes, I think that we have. We actually have, and now I'm in a fortunate position of having a, a being able to apply a more operational lens um, to how we can implement in within an organisation some of these kinds of measures, um, and certainly. I think there's a really big opportunity to harness, particularly in, within uh, QBCC, our technology to be able to take some of the time out of processing certain um, forms and aspects and assessments that we can embed into our technology system to be able to automate some of the other things that we currently do manually in order to free up some capability and capacity to focus on some of the things that are new that we want to get our heads around and see where we can implement changes within our current systems um, to be able to be more efficient and save money but saving money meaning the time it takes to undertake procurement and do due diligence mm -hmm. um, that way you you can potentially be freeing up some dollars to put towards whether it's software or whether it's investigation or whether it's something else that you deem is necessary. Um, it's about repositioning some things to enable, free up some of those dollars for that, to put towards that. I also think it really helps to have the leadership driving from above. Um, certainly the CEO and commissioner is very keen on a focus on ESG. Um, it's not just the private sector. Um, a statutory body like QBCC does sit across the lines of, uh, in terms of commercial and public sector. So uh, we definitely identify that reputational risk as being really important. And also with the change in the community views about who they want to invest in, um, in terms of being a shareholder and leaning more towards ethical investments um, and the more that people start doing that, the more responsibility and the more good business sense it makes for a business to make sure that they're doing the right thing as well. So it becomes more cost effective to them too to maintain that high standard. Um, and we should be leaders, as in we government should be leaders in showing that we also agree that it's the right thing too. Balancing that out with six nurses getting jobs instead so we're always going to be balancing out the need versus um, a requirement to help the community um, so i think not every decision is going to be made with a view of addressing modern slavery but we want to approach at least incrementally some change yeah. I, I think alicia you um in highlighting the value of doing a bit more in terms of your due diligence and your effort around the procurement. Um, um, 
I think that um, I think that that can lead to a result where um, the compliance cost might be sometimes uh, imaginary. So, so, so in other words, um, uh, I think of a practical example where we um, were involved in sourcing some clothing, which is um, classically a high risk area, um, and um, the. The uh, easy pathway was to go to an existing supplier whose, um, whose product um, uh, was sourced from a high-risk market as well, uh, and um, overseas, and um, on the assumption that that would be quick, easy and cheap. Um, because of the nature of the clothing we were buying, we actually put a greater effort into that sourcing piece and we were able to source product which was um, uh, locally manufactured, although the, the, the fabric was sourced overseas, but where the provider was able to demonstrate um, uh, due diligence through their supply chain, which wasn't the case in the other, uh, other, other case, uh, and it was actually cheaper. Oh. So, so, oh. so sometimes, um, uh, that increased effort can yield a, um, a commercial benefit, if yeah. you like, yeah. as well as delivering that ESG benefit. So I think and that's... Where, and yeah. where you can make a difference or influence during your negotiation. So is it around, could you get a better price because of volume that you, you mm. agree to purchase or, that, or the length of time that you agree to be with that particular supplier? So that I think there's other ways through those procurement mechanisms in the process mm -hmm. that might be able to address some of the cost factor by showing a benefit to the supplier by mm. doing something for mm. them I, I think, and, I think a, and committing a, to them. A mortgage broker once talked to me about inattention tax, which is when you don't pay attention to what you're being charged as an interest rate. And this yeah. is a bit the same. Uh, the inattention tax both increases your modern slavery procurement risk, but also increases your price risk. Yeah. And just on that, um, this is more of a, a wicked problem. Yeah. Um, that uh, I, I think we've uh, we're all in the same meeting when this was discussed uh, some time ago, where uh, a buyer of some fairly specialised um, personal protective equipment that was required. Uh, in a very high risk environment so it was required for, for mm -hmm. protecting people's lives and the only supplier was based in a high risk country um, not necessarily um, slavery used in the production of this product but it was certainly a risk that they had to consider um, and at the end of the day they decided that the the uh, the risk of protecting somebody's life here um, trumped the risk mm -hmm. of modern slavery um, can we do both, save people from slavery as well as save and protect people's lives here? Or is this the sort of thing that uh, you know, will always be a challenging decision for us? Uh, and how do we go about making those decisions when we are confronted with such a, 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 a hard choice? Mm. Um, uh, I think to some extent, yeah, those ethical challenges will always be with us. So, and, and not just ethical, and not just modern slavery versus, you know, um, 
cost and the need to save lives with the product. Um, but in, in a lot of what we do, we're balancing relative goods, uh, uh, relative benefits from, from different aspects of procurement. And so um, I think procurement practitioners are used to that question. Um, uh, I think there is no one right answer to that. Uh, and I think, um, I think the best thing that you can do is to um, actually uh, think about it. You know, the, the best thing you can do is to um, raise your consciousness to the fact that you're dealing with that, that ethical dilemma uh, and um, uh, obviously seek advice and um, uh, yeah. at, at the end of the day there's always tough decisions to be made um, but the best decisions are made uh, uh, with contemplation yeah. and, and where it's possible time of course but Time's not always your friend, uh, but but um, uh, getting ahead of the game in in modern slavery uh, or many procurement issues, getting ahead of the game and not becoming uh, a victim of the reactive world uh, which we live in in a procurement space uh, is really important. I think. Yeah. I think in your example as well. Um, I'll, I'll be a bit tougher. Mm -hmm. I think the answer is no. Um, you the decision because it was the the only supplier, the sole supplier of that particular product that made it to that standard of quality for that particular purpose of saving um, people's lives, um, potentially saving people's lives um, during an event. Then no, you have to make that choice. But what you've described is the process of what like what Peter said about they've turned their mind and attention to the ethical um, aspects being modern slavery and probably a whole range of other things while they were looking at that as well which shows that if they're doing it for that piece they're doing it for all the other ones as well so they've already got in their process and minds that that consideration and you're not always going to end up with the outcome that is going to achieve that end result for that. But you might end up with an outcome that achieves a longer term environmental benefit or, um, or reduction of emissions, or you might in one other case, reduce modern slavery or address modern slavery. And it converts back to that, looking at your industry, your products and your areas of higher risk to see where you are able to um, make that decision appropriately. I think your example shows that they thought about it, still didn't work, probably is never going to, but they could do it in another way and there is that they're still making a difference there. Excellent. Um, so we do occasionally see pushback from people uh, about having to comply with it because it's yet again one more compliance um, that they have to wear the cost of and the time. Um, so how can we go about turning people's hearts and minds to this issue and not just seeing it as a compliance or box ticking or cost that they need to incur? I think it's really because it has only had the focus and traction within business and um, with more of, I guess, a focus on forced labour uh, and more about procurement than more about what 
it, what's happening in the community at large, drawing on the resources of all the eyes and individuals in the community to identify modern slavery and call it out and know what it is, to be able to um, see it then not just as compliance, because for us it is, it, it's a legislative requirement. Um, you have to do it, so we do it. If it wasn't there, then people probably wouldn't be doing it if we're mm. being absolutely honest. Um, unless there's the more broader focus on, well, it is happening and identifying that it is happening here and in our community and to people every day. And we in procurement don't necessarily have the visibility of what goes on in every single organisation or, um, or is there, a, or nor is there a mechanism currently for people's, people in the community to be able to report on something that they see or anonymously say, I'm experiencing this and somebody doing something about it. So I think until we reach that point, it'll make the transition from compliance into more of that social responsibility. We're looking after each other and that's the hearts and minds part. It's happening in Logan, it's happening in you know, Mackay. We saw it to our neighbour. It, make, it brings it a little bit closer to home to be able to make the, that difference and that association and to turn that attention. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I think it, um, um, yes, when, when you talk, Alicia, about um, uh, your neighbour and um, you know, pe people in your environment, I mean, part of it is that um, we talk about it conceptually and there's always a risk of it when we talk, give anything a label that it just becomes the uh, sort of uh, idealised concept. But, but at, the, at the end of modern slavery are real humans right. who are exactly. really suffering. Right. Uh, and I think um, part of the winning the hearts and minds is to um, um, remind people um, about those real cases. Uh, and the, the, there's, pl there's, plenty of, um, uh, there's plenty of material uh, on, online and provided by uh, NGOs and governments to, to explain what that looks like. But, but I think, um, yes, um, I guess confronting people with the reality of it uh, is, is, uh, is a powerful thing. Um, uh, so, so that's probably my reflection. And, and I think giving, because we know from other campaigns mm. that you know, scare tactics don't necessarily work all the time. Um, if anything, you, you walk a fine line between turning people off because mm. it's so mm. off-putting, but also that you can run the risk of making people feel helpless in what to do mm. if there isn't an avenue that mm. is going to be effective if they were to use it. Um, so I think the, you can't have one before the other. Um, so getting that community awareness means we have to have an avenue for people to go to if they want to report it and they and feel like something's going to happen if they do. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, which kind of brings me to probably my final question. <laughs> um, so we do talk a lot about, um, you know, what we need to do to identify and address modern slavery, but um, how often have we actually really come across it? So, um, you know, what do we do if we come across modern slavery? Because like I've come across a lot of people who have put in place some great plans and stuff, but I'm not really uh, aware of too many who have actually identified it and then gone off and addressed it. 
effectively. So how can we go about addressing it? Well, I don't, I'm not aware of... If we find them. If we, yeah. Um, I'm not aware of, like, hypothetically, um, in, an, in an ideal world, and I've sort of talked a little bit about this before, in an ideal world where we perform contract management to a contract management plan with set meetings with the supplier and we're, we're looking at the KPIs that we identified through the procurement process and we could utilise that activity, the already existing process within procurement to um, speak to and have the conversation discussion with high risk suppliers. We've identified the risk that filled out the survey. Mm, what are we gonna do? Talk to the supplier and come up with an action plan with them that has some realistic things that they agree to do to step by step and make some incremental change at reducing the risk within their business. We don't want to remove their contract we because it doesn't help the cause. It just removes a supplier from supplying to government, but it certainly doesn't address the issue of modern slavery. It just passes it on to someone else who doesn't do those kinds of checks. Um, an action plan is good, but you have to have time to do it. What should be put in it? <clears throat> Does it work at the end? Because we don't really, as you say, Shane, have many examples that I'm aware of either of how that's worked and you know, what the supplier's view of that was and, and how they felt about it after at the end too. Um, what does it mean for them to reduce their risk of modern slavery? Mm. Um, the other thing is, who do you call? Well, at the moment, all the, all the documentation says to call the Australian Federal Police. Um, I've sort of been thinking in my mind, okay, and so we call them they can't tell us anything after we've told them the thing anyway. Um, privacy and confidentiality, we would never know the outcome of any investigation that occurred. Um, we may know if we get called to go to court or something on it, um, but other than that, what's the process happening behind the scenes for them? Like, do they have a modern slavery team that understands and knows how to investigate modern slavery themselves? Um, is there an unintended consequence of us drawing all this attention to modern slavery across the community and AFP getting a thousand calls a year on modern slavery that they have to follow up with? Um, and then also the groups that we're looking at, and somebody else brought this up on another forum, the groups that we're looking at are potentially, you know, might have a lapsed visa or they might be in a situation where that the reason why they're experiencing modern slavery is because something is withholding them from reporting it anyway. Um, and we don't necessarily want to then get them deported or having um, them have to go back to a situation in another country that might be worse than what they're experiencing here. So yeah. there's that dilemma too. Yeah. Um, it's not really an answer. <laughs> no, great discussion. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, I think I think um, domestically, um, and so far as um, so far as the Queensland government's concerned, and I know this is the case for some of the other Australian jurisdictions too, um, we have what amounts to a debarment regime for um, for um, companies that are um, convicted of what amounts to wage theft. 
So, so, so we we have that in place. We call it the ethical supplier threshold here. Um, so, so we do exclude suppliers from our supply chains, and there is a mechanism within that for us to discuss remediation with 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 the supplier too to effectively reduce the impact of that debarment in exchange for them improving the act. So, so and modern slavery is, if you like. Um, the worst end of that spectrum of things. So, 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 um, I think um, I think that's a practical thing that we have in place. Yeah. Um, it does, it does, and will always, I think, suffer from this, from what you've mentioned, Alicia, which is that um, it's of its nature a private. Uh, Action, so so it's a matter between government and its supplier, right? and so it's not a public, um, uh, uh, it's not public punishment, <laughs> and and, um, uh, and but we absolutely have complaints uh, avenues for people to make internationally. Yes, obviously that's more challenging. Um, um, certainly, the AFP and Border Force are the place to take that. What, what goes on beyond there, I guess, is in the practice of the AFP and the Border Force. Um, um, but um, uh, one thing is certain, that if you say nothing, nothing will happen. So, so, so um, the old thing about, you know, for evil to triumph, or what's required is for good people to do nothing. So, okay. so, 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 um, uh, even if that that um, referral um, is perceived to be unproductive, I would encourage people to 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 refer because without that referral, um, nothing can happen. Yeah, and I think that's actually an excellent note on which to finish, um, because as you say, if if we don't do anything, then then you know nothing's going to change anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it is an evolving space where all of us are, are growing and, and the government certainly acknowledged that when they released the Modern Slavery Act and you know, didn't expect everybody to have uh, their supply chains mapped right through to the end on the, the first reporting period, of course. But we are all starting to gain more uh, um, awareness and understanding of what we can do. So there will always, I guess, be these ethical challenges. But I think we are making some good in inroads. Um, so I do want to thank both of you for your time today. Thank you. And uh, we shall continue fighting the good fight. We shall. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for thank inviting you. us. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Alicia. Bye.